Welcome back to our podcast called The Research Behind Lift the Lid, where we talk to researchers previously funded by Australian Rotary Health about their research findings. I'm Jessica Cooper, and today on episode 24, we will be talking with Professor Jim Marley from the University of Sydney. Professor Marley was awarded an Australian Rotary Health Mental Health Research Grant from 2017 to 2019 for his project called Preventing Suicide in Young Australians with Mood Disorders, Adjunctive Lithium for Acute Suicidality Alias Study. Professor Marley holds a psychiatry chair within the University of Sydney. He is the executive and clinical director of the Cade Clinic and is based at the Northern Clinical School as the head of academic department of psychiatry within Royal North Shore Hospital. Professor Marley's research interests include mood disorders, in particular bipolar disorder and depression. His research team makes use of clinical and neuropsychological assessments in conjunction with functional neuroimaging to investigate the neural basis of affective disorders in adolescents and adults. He's especially interested in pharmacological therapies such as lithium and their mechanisms of action. He's also interested in psychological therapies in the impact of lifestyle on mood. And in recent years, his research has increasingly focused on suicide and the prevention of mood disorders. So thank you very much, Jim, for joining me on today's podcast episode. How's everything been going for you lately? Oh, it's been busy, but good. And um, thank you for having me on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to be here and be able to talk to people. Yeah, no worries. It's, it's great to have you. And it'll be great to talk about your research today. Um, just recently, you shared um, your results with us from your Australian Rotary Health um, Mental Health Research Grants, which was a very important study on suicide prevention. So I, I guess to start off, do you want to tell us a bit about the aims of your study and, and what it involved? I think it's important to put it in context and also understand what's happening more broadly and what we're trying to achieve. So suicide, I think everyone knows, is a big problem. Um, thankfully, we're talking much more about it. There's greater awareness of it. But sadly, we're not being able to conquer it. And if you look at the statistics, Australia and indeed worldwide, suicide rates are hardly un, you know, changing. And, and it's unclear to us why that's the case. Um, Australia, for example, I would say is very literate in terms of understanding mental health problems and also the causes for mental health issues. And yet we're not being able to have, to have an impact on something we can measure very objectively. There's lots of things we look at, you know, people being in hospital, people seeing doctors, having inpatient stays, but these measures are usually not as robust as we'd like. Whereas suicide is a great marker in and of itself. Are, are we making a change? And so um, there's a little bit of a quandary there. Why is it that all this effort doesn't seem to be translating uh, as much as we would like into an impact on a society that clearly is experiencing uh, very high levels of suicide? And we've seen that more recently in the North Shore in Sydney, where I stay, many schools have been affected. Many young people are attempting and committing suicide, which is extremely sad. And we've known about suicide in the rural communities for a while. So that's been the impetus for our research. Now, when we look at what people are doing, um, one of the key things I'd like to get across is suicide is the end stage of a process. And it's an event and it's very heterogeneous. 
That's to say, very many causes lead to suicide. And so just talking about suicide and saying these are the statistics and this is what's happened and we should do something about it is a starting point. But what we really need to be able to understand is how did we get there? What are the steps that lead up to a suicide attempt? And what are the things that are going through the person's mind or what's happening in their life that actually prompted them to consider this? And so that's where our research has been targeted. We wanted to be able to identify firstly, is there a process that we can understand much better and maybe intervene much earlier, much, much earlier. I'm talking weeks and perhaps even months. So there's a kind of general thing about, can we change the vulnerability and propensity for suicide in our population? So overall, we're less likely to consider it as even an option. And the second thing is, if someone is in the throes of thinking about suicide, is there something we can do about it even at that late stage, if we understand the process and what unfolds? And so that's where we really wanted to target our research. And we, we went about it in a number of ways. So the CAVE clinic that you mentioned in the introduction, uh, we do complex assessments of mood disorders. And we would see people who have attempted suicide time and time again, or people thinking about suicide. And so what we did was we developed a model, first of all, which we published a few years back, and we've been refining that model, which has integrating the neurobiology of the brain what goes on in the person's mind in terms of their thinking, which broadly you would call the neuropsychology of, of the brain, and trying to understand what that means in terms of how they formulate the idea of killing themselves or harming themselves and the steps that they take. Now, one of the interesting things in that arena is that people often think they're very dismissive of suicide and say, well, it's just an irrational act. Um, it, it's spontaneous, it's impulsive, and there's nothing to be understood about it. And that's probably applicable to a very small number of suicides. There's no doubt that some people who are more prone to taking risks or indeed taking risky actions or are impulsive by nature may well, in a moment of heated passion, decide that, oh, I'm going to show people this is what I, you know, my life is about, or this issue needs to be resolved in this way, or I need, need someone to, to, to engage with me. Even in those circumstances, though, there is a motive. People are doing it for a reason, and so we have to understand that. But that's, that's the impulsive suicide. I think to, to, to describe all suicides in that, in that vein is not appropriate. The majority of suicides, and those that are successful, inverted commas, that's to say people actually go through with it and kill themselves, unfortunately, those are well-considered and well-planned. People have thought about it for a while. And if you think about it, you have to be able to set up the apparatus and also identify a time and deceive all the people around you. Excuse me. <clears throat> and that could be your family, your, your friends, your work colleagues, and then be able to enact that. So that requires what we call high executive functioning. The person needs to be able to put ideas together. They also need to be able to keep up a persona of normality, deceive people, and yet still have the cognitive awareness about to, to work things out, to calculate. So that executive function is intact. What interferes with that normally is our emotions. And I can't think of anything more distressing that life is so hopeless and helpless that you want to kill yourself. So that is going to evoke emotions. So initially, in our early phase, what we've described in our model as reappraisal, the person takes stock of their life. They think, what is going good for me? What's going bad for me? Both in terms of themselves, their relationships, the world as a whole. And then they make a decision. And then the idea of a suicide act comes to their mind. Now, 
we know that that's more likely if people are depressed and it's and suicide clearly occurs far more commonly in the context of depression but there's still a separate thought process around this planning and so the idea then leads to this intent and planning and that sort of iterates for a while now during that time the person's quite perplexed and quite agitated and people will say look I, i'm feeling uh wound up uh, i'm not sure what i should do and we describe that ambivalence phase as the, the the sort of weighing up of the pros and cons and the various drivers that have brought the person to that point in the first place fighting against each other but at some point there seems to be a switch the person commits to the idea and once they do that they actually see it as an escape from the pain that they're feeling now when people talk about pain um it's it's often localized and what i mean about that is if you said to me i've got a pain i'd say where is it and you might say oh it's in my ankle my elbow or you might even say it's in my head but you never say it's in your brain you sort of say it's in part of your body and the assumption is it's localized to somewhere in what we conceive of as our body but in fact the ultimate perception of pain is all internal it has to be in the mind the mind has to conceive of it it represents it in our body but ultimately the perception of it is in our mind now psychic pain which has been called all sorts of things like psychic and so on that's really pertains to this idea that an illness like depression can cause an acute mental pain and and that's what is driving some of this uh, you know drive towards suicide now in addition to that the person is suffering and so all of that builds up towards a cognition which is prepotent we we describe it as as to say it's primed to think about suicide so when you talk to people who are in that phase they will be constantly ruminating about it it's it's the only thing they can actually focus on and they're worried about it and they're cogitating and going back and forth and clearly that also has an impact on their lives like sleeping and so on and their interactions now in terms of our research we thought well look if we really want to understand this process and let's just imagine it as a as a staircase and you're going from from the top of it down to the bottom and each step that you take the the process evolves and this is why I was emphasizing at the beginning that you need to think of suicide not as the event at the end point that's the culmination what is the lead up and we broke that down into various steps and so what we've done is lots of imaging studies where we've taken people who we know have had suicidal ideation in the past who we know have had depression in the past and we've looked at them at these various stages and tried to see what is unique about the way they're thinking what's happening in the brain that defines that now obviously we could have just found nothing we could have found well it's too complicated or we're looking in the wrong place or there isn't a recognizable pattern you know it could could well we be we looked around and nothing came out of it but to our surprise we found that those steps that we had anticipated or thought about and and basically devised from our clinical experience actually correlate quite nicely with various changes in the brain now that's fantastic i really can't emphasize how important that is because that means it's not just a slide it's not just a a quick precipitous decline from you think about it and you end up doing something it's actually a stepwise process people are going through phases Now the advantage we see in that is well firstly we can identify in people in different places and not just think of people being either depressed or just having suicidal thoughts or having attempted suicide we can actually look at it as a process as it evolves and build a much more useful clinical picture so that's the first thing the second thing is maybe and just maybe there are means of actually reversing that 
So we're at each step, maybe we need different strategies. And so going back to my earlier point, you know, I made that point about the fact that there's a big disjunction between what's happening in terms of awareness and the campaigns and the access to services that we have in a country like Australia, which is doing extremely well on the mental health front, and that gap and actual outcomes. It may well be that a lot of our initiatives are not targeted to those particular steps. And you can imagine if you need different things at different stages, well, if you get the wrong thing at the wrong time, it's not going to work. And so the example I often give to people when I'm talking about this is we all know about heart attacks and heart disease. And if obviously someone unfortunately does have a heart attack, you can resuscitate them. You can try and do something acutely at that time. Uh, very few people would advocate that at that point that you should be giving them a pill to lower their cholesterol. It's not going to do anything. So those strategies have to be used at the right time. So statins to lower cholesterol, exercise and stopping smoking, they're great initiatives long-term, but at the acute stage, they're not useful. And similarly, we can't go around jumping on people's chests all the time um, when they don't need it. <laughs> so similarly with suicide, if we see it as that process and we see it as that stepwise progression towards having the idea, the intent, the formulation, the planning, the strategy, etc then we can try to dissect that. Now, our imaging research has already identified two of those steps. And what we're trying to do is obviously connect the dots. You know, we, we, we weren't, as I said, totally confident that we would find this particular pattern. We thought there might be something there. Uh, we made an educated guess, but we've been very pleasantly surprised. We've found these networks that seem to be uh, characteristic of those particular phases, but the picture is still incomplete. We need to do a lot more work. There's many more steps on this staircase. And what we're finding, however, is that there is an interaction, exactly as we assumed, between networks that consider the self, our memories, our sense of being, plus our future projection. That's to say, how do we envisage ourselves? Now, if you think about what's happening and what person is doing, they're making probably the most important calculation in their life. Is my life worth living? What is it that I'm getting out of it at the moment? And that's a really, really complex question. You have to look at your attachments. You have to look at your memories. You, you have to look at what you're getting out of the life, your life now. And some element might be, what is the prospect for the future? Is there hope in the future? And many people have looked at all sorts of these, these factors and seen some kind of associations. But to pin it down is really important. Now, we're not necessarily saying that's going to correlate with a particular thought. And let me just pause there for a second to explain how imaging works. So there's two types of imaging that you can do. You can look at the brain when it's resting, and these are the thoughts that spontaneously arise in your mind. Otherwise, you can train the brain. Now, that's to say, give them a task. And, and, and what that does is you can accentuate certain aspects or functions within the brain. So, for example, if I was to give you a visual task or an auditory task and you have to listen to something, then your brain is engaged in that task. Now, if I'm interested in that part of the brain, that's great. But part of that is also you need to know where to look. So what we did was we did a, a little bit of both. We basically took a white canvas and we thought, right, we're just going to have a look at the whole brain when it's resting and what it's thinking. And these are people we know who are having spontaneous suicidal thoughts or they have a, a proclivity for that. And then we also thought, well, let's try to recreate that ambivalence I was talking about, that that's uncertainty, that switch from anxiety, perplexity, agitation, and, 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 and cogitating around what to do versus the, the, the calm collectedness and the determination that leads to the event. Is that switch somehow something we can capture? 
And that's what we did with our tasks. We, we, we gave them tasks in the scanner that evoked similar sorts of ambivalence in the brain. And when we look at those patterns, we were staggered. You know, we were able to, first of all, differentiate people in terms of that switch and in terms of what's going on, uh, in, in terms of them trying to think about suicide. And at the same time, just fortuitously, we found that the brain, when it's resting, is different for those people who've attempted suicide versus those who've never attempted it. And we were initially puzzled by that. We thought, why should that be the case, that the people who've attempted suicide, they're actually significantly uh, changed forevermore, seemingly so. Now, obviously, we would need to know that longitudinally by seeing, is there a, is there a time effect? Is it because they've been uh, you know, relatively recently engaged in a suicide attempt? Is, is this something that only lasts a few months or years, etc.? From our data, though, it, it seems that that's unlikely. It may well be a permanent change in the way the brain works. Mm. And so the way we've conceptualized that is rather crudely in the sense that um, if you imagine someone having a road traffic accident, breaking a limb, um, yes, you can repair bones and they seem to work as well uh, as they did before. But you'll ask people closely and most people say, well, you know, look, I still get a bit of a niggle. Or I don't, put, I don't always do the same things that I used to previously. Or I find if I do them for two, three hours, I do get the pain coming back. And so what that shows is that things do repair, but they might get to 95%. They just don't get to that last 100%, the 5% that you need. And so we think with the suicide attempts, clearly when someone makes a serious suicide attempt, they have made that decision. The brain itself, after all, we're talking about ourselves doing this, the brain itself has at some point or another taken an action to basically switch itself off. And so that's a, that's a profound thing to, to, to go through, both in terms of our sense of self and more practically in terms of switching everything off and thinking, well, this is it. Yeah. It's an event in itself, which clearly is going to transform something in the brain. Yeah. And so that's what we're, we're really, really sort of looking at now with our research is to understand that. Now, why that's also important from a research perspective is it may well be that one of the reasons a lot of research isn't finding a robust signal is that you were pooling everyone together. So all the people who've ever had an attempt, people who've thought about it, people who've never thought about it, and we're asking them these questions and we're putting them in scanners, we're doing neuropsych testing on them, but we're treating them all as one group. Mm. What it may be, is more accurate to do is to actually separate them out and say people who've attempted their brains changed yeah. they have a different brain now so let's look at their brain those people who are thinking about it a lot their brain might be slightly different again those people have very severe depression of different types maybe they have a different type of brain again i think we need much more specificity and that, that has to come for off. future research is that absolutely yeah. yes yes i know we, we want to get this staircase in 3d you know we want to be very very clear about every step and also understand uh, you know how it works and then also move um people either side you know to sort of see whether we can actually shift them backwards on the staircase with various interventions so one of the things that i think you mentioned in the introduction was our interest in um in lithium Yes. And um, lithium, you know, is an Australian drug, if I may say. Um, it was discovered by uh, uh, John Cade and then it's been taken around the world, uh, in particular by people like Moen Scow, um, who promulgated its message um, worldwide. And, and it saved uh, hundreds of thousands of lives. 
uh, and it's been around now for more than 70 years. So it, it's, it's a profound drug to have in our armamentarium, not only because it's a mood stabilizer, and what I mean by that is it helps both with depression and with mania, and we think prevents those episodes, but it also seems to be anti-suicidal. Now that's a, an odd term to use, but it basically diminishes the likelihood of people having suicidal thoughts or at least attempts. Now, if that's the case, if we can show that biologically, we know some of the mechanisms that lithium interferes within the cascades that are inside the cell, and those seem to have some link to the same types of thoughts and, and uh, networks that we're interested in, but that's still not good enough evidence. What we really need is to be able to see a before and after, a change occur. And so our, our, our sort of golden study would be, we have the clear idea of our pathway. Our, our staircase is, is, is brightly lit. We know all the various steps on it. We have people who we then subject to various types of interventions. Now, alongside lithium, we can also have neuropsychological interventions, other things about how we talk to people and how we engage them, how we get a, a better understanding of what they're thinking and try to maybe address some of the negative cognitions. Now, if we do all of those types of things and we see that study and we can see that, yes, we can make an impact, we can move them from one step to a step before and maybe a step before, that's what we want to be able to achieve. And that is the targeted type of intervention that I think then will have a profound impact on what I was talking about at the outset. And so that's what our research is about. We're very, very grateful, obviously, that um, Rotary has been supporting us, as have other organizations. And I should mention some of them. I mean, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention has also been pivotal in, in providing some support for our research, not to mention uh, the NHMRC and other, other groups. Um, and obviously, then, the patients who've given up their time and uh, share so, so freely um, their insights. Uh, and the fantastic team I have, you know, it wouldn't be possible. But we, we do still have quite a few things to try to understand. But, you know, I'm, I'm excited because I think we're actually onto something. We have a deeper understanding and a very different understanding to the very simplistic view that it's just an event and that it sometimes occurs. And yes, it's tragic, but that's not a reason to dismiss it. Yeah, well, I guess it, it just goes to show that um, getting getting that funding for, for these research projects, it, you know, you, you learn something in the beginning and then it extends a bit further and, you know, you get all this knowledge eventually and, you know, you have this complete picture. But, yeah, it takes time to, to get that, you know, picture together. And But it, it does sound like you, you've done a lot so far and you've learnt a lot and, and there's just so much more to learn. So but it sounds like, yeah, it's been very important, the research that you've been doing. And, yeah, I appreciate you sharing it today. So, yeah, thank you. It's been vital, Jessica. I really want to emphasize that because one of the other things about the type of funding Rotary provides, and I've been fortunate in having a couple of grants uh, uh, in my career from, the, from Rotary itself, is that they understand that ideas have to be allowed to flourish and develop. And so they support good ideas, but they also support good people and teams. And they then allow the clinicians or researchers to devise the study and they don't interfere with it. You know, a lot, a lot, a lot of research at the moment is very driven by some economic goal or some other outcome. And that puts real constraints on parameters that actually uh, are likely to stifle that research. And sometimes you, as you're doing research, as I said, our findings uh, surprised us. So, so we were able to adapt to that. You know, we were able to build on that. And that's really important in research. I mean, that engages researchers and, and we then stick closely to the path of discovery. Otherwise, 
people can do all sorts of research, but does it ultimately change lives? Does it impact in terms of providing new knowledge? Does it, does it discover new things? I would argue no. So I think Rotary has a very good model and, um, uh, you know, very, very grateful for their ongoing support. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's always great to, to fund projects like this that, that have, you know, real world implications. Like it, it sounds like these results can really have an impact and, and help real people who are having thoughts of suicide. Do you see this, you know, happening, like, you know, really making a difference in the long term? I think the, the very immediate impact is understanding. I think one of the things that people are always grasping uh, uh, or reaching out for is, is a sense of why. Why did this happen? And we don't have satisfactory answers for that. So being able to provide a deeper understanding, one which appreciates that this is a process and there are many factors that have contributed to it, and putting some science behind that actually is some sort of consolation. And many people we've spoken to, just that alone, has validated what happened, both for themselves if they've survived or their families if they haven't. I think that in itself has been huge. The other thing I should say is I've presented some of this research in some of the interactions I had last year um, at Yale with a colleague of mine. Uh, and you know their group was fascinated by our findings and it's integrated into their research and their thinking and their models. And we're in conversation about uh, collaborating on various research projects. So one of the other things that this type of research also does is it, it actually triggers further research. Other people see the idea, see that there's something being substantiated and they want to build on it. So we're doing a lot in terms of the research community having an impact, but clinically, I think the immediate impact is a kind of affirmation for people that yes, this is something that is akin to a disease it's a disorder it's an illness it's not just you and i think that's the stigma we need to get away from um where the stigma starts with a lot of mental illnesses and, and behaviors such as suicide is people always then attribute it to the personality and the person rather than saying well actually something went wrong and we need to find out what that was and we need to extend them the same human decency and courtesy and understanding that we would with anyone with a serious illness such as cancer yeah, absolutely. Yeah, having those those brain scans, you know, that that really tells us a lot about what's going on inside the brain of someone who is suicidal. And you know, it's just like if yeah, someone had any other disease in in any other part of their body. So yeah, just having that evidence there, that's that's amazing. And hopefully, it will get through to people that you know this is something that's really serious and and can be treated like a, a normal medical problem. So yeah, that's that's excellent. Um, and I, I do thank you again for joining us on our podcast today, Jim. Um, I guess before we wrap, yeah, I guess before we wrap up, was there anything else that you wanted to add? No, I think I've covered as, as broadly as possible as some of the key findings and, and that, that model. I really want people to sort of think about that themselves as well and, and, and also extend some hope in that, in, in that regard as well, that we are doing um, good quality research in Australia, not just our group, many, many other groups as well. A lot of people trying to uh, understand this phenomenon um, and we're getting somewhere, which is meaningful. Yeah, well, well thank you so much again. Take care. Bye. That was the 24th episode of our podcast called The Research Behind Lift the Lid. It's always so inspiring to hear what researchers in Australia are doing to make a difference to mental health and how they are helping us on our mission to lift the lid on mental illness. If you can, please support important mental health research like Jim's by donating on the Australian Rotary Health website. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time. Thank you.